I'm Julia Sherbakov, and this is Impact Journey. Conversations with hidden heroes making big societal change. By focusing on customers, we forgot that there are citizens behind customers. So at the same time that we were trying to say, no, but the customer don't want to pay more, here but the citizen demands it. I am thrilled to welcome my guest today, Baptiste Carrier-Pradal of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition about Baptiste's impact. He is currently VP of Europe at the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, the industry's leading alliance for sustainable production. He's also on the steering committee of the Global Fashion Agenda. Those are the folks behind the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. And before that, he was actually for years head of sustainability at Decathlon or Decathlon, the largest sporting goods retailer in the world. So he's got a really broad view in fashion apparel about what's happening in sustainability now about his journey in this conversation we explore an issue that right now is coming ever more to the forefront and we see it in different industries we see it with environmental and social issues which is the fact that people are starting to take action into their own hands in the fashion industry, and we talk about this in our conversation, we really saw the pin drop in the Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh in 2013. And that's where a lot of citizen groups formed, the big one called Fashion Revolution, that really forced a lot of fashion companies to really revisit what they stand for and the impact that they're making. So we talk about everything from how he got into this, which he kind of lucked into, but interestingly enough, was also inspired by things like dystopian fiction and winemaking. We also talk about what it means for companies to start changing their behaviors from viewing people as customers to viewing them as citizens. Enjoy my conversation with Baptiste Carrier-Padal. So starting out, one thing I don't really know about you is how you got started in this direction of CSR and sustainability, because looking at your background, you studied physics and engineering. Yeah, exactly. And then you went directly into the sustainability no. world. How do you even kind of paying attention to that? How did you even become aware of it and then start to focus on it? How did that happen? So indeed, my background, academic background, exactly what you said. It's exactly engineering and uh, physics, so completely different. But at least that's, <laughs> that allows you after to think rationally when you talk about climate change or things like that. So you know, and I was definitely having a big interest into the more classic studies in a certain way. So reading a lot. Hmm. I was reading a lot of the utopian books, a lot of um, dystopia books, a lot of anticipation science fiction. So I was always trying to very interested in what our world could look like if we were taking path A, B, or C. So therefore, at this time, I already started to develop an acute wish to work on this field, even if at the time this field was not defined. That was virtually a field that CSR was not really existing in the sense as we do it today. And so therefore, I pursued the scientific road. And what happened is that at the very beginning, when company inherited the, to work on social and environment, and it started mainly by social. The company took a perspective which was, okay, we need to work on social. Um, what does that mean? Oh, that means to do audits. Okay, who in our team is doing audits? Or oh, I guess the quality team is doing audits. Let's give that to them. So therefore, I entered into a corporation from the quality side exactly at the time when the social was coming 
And in my first week of introduction, I had my first social training. So training on social, at the time, really social compliance in factories. And the moment I did the training, I thought, okay, this is exactly the junction of work that I've been looking for all of the time. Now it's offered to me. And from this time, I thought, I only want to work on that. So this is really what I want to devote my time. So wow. immediately, I said to the, at the time, the guy in charge at Decathlon of quality and things, he said, okay, what do you want to do in 10 years? I said, I want to be the director of sustainability of the company. Wait, that's a position who doesn't exist. I don't care. That's what I want to do. That's what I will be able to. That's really what I want to work and strive for. It took me 10 years, actually, literally the eight. It took me really eight years to indeed create the position, but to go there. But that was, that was brilliant. That was a perfect way to start. That's kind of amazing. So this sustainability professionals and a sustainability profession when you went into the working world didn't really exist. I find that actually fascinating. Two things about this really fascinating. The fact that you kind of lucked into it in a way because going into the quality side, you didn't necessarily know for sure that that's where it was going to lead you. But the fact that going into it and then seeing very catching on really quickly that it's, it was in line with what you wanted to do. The second thing I find really fascinating about that is your vision for it the, the fact that you really recognized what you liked when you saw it, that that came from reading fiction. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Like that gave you the vision because that didn't exist. You know, the, the vision of a more sustainable future, like I guess of, of all the things, I mean, it's as likely as anything else to give you a vision for what's possible. Exactly, because virtually today a, sustainability, a sustainable uh, civilization is still an utopia. We, we have no clue how to reach there. We are kind of vague. <laughs> there is so many things that we still haven't completed. So virtually when you want to uh, be, live in a sustainable world and sustainable in the big sense of it, meaning just uh, that can sustain itself in the real sense of it, which is now coming towards a more regenerative type of approach of our civilization, that really help to nurture the future ones, not only to allow them to still thrive, but to even do better. So that means that you need to, you need to spend your time imagining what it can look like. And therefore, I think that if you look at the things today that are offered, when, especially 20 years ago, <laughs> when I was a student, yeah. pre the massive internet, pre all of that, the first source of information you have is indeed all of the, all of the science fiction. All of the, the science fiction in the sense of fantasy. That's why I really say what I call anticipation science fiction. The one that really tried to project indeed exactly what the world would look like if we carry on this way, this way, this way. But indeed, that's by seeing that, thinking I don't want to see that happen. How can I do and what does that need to be, to be done to avoid to go in this direction and to reshape the sense of history or to participate in its reshaping? Yeah, exactly. And it's so interesting because I never, I think you're the first person I've ever talked to who saw dystopian books, movies, etc. as a for whom it shaped you so much. Because I think for a lot of people, they see something in their own life and they're like, oh, I don't want this, right? And I want to move in a, in a different direction. There, there was that also, but that was something that after I, there was a second thing like that, but then I don't, I don't really quote it a lot, but it's, so I'm coming from a winemaking family. So that also means that when you think about things, first you have a timeline, which is generations. So you are so far from the world of startup and from the belief that in six months, one year, you can change the world. No. You, you may change a couple of things on a superficial level, but you are not changing the world in six months to one year. This, is, this you can sell to a venture capitalist, but this is not in real life. 
when I see a piece of land, when I talk about what I want to do in the future, first I need to deroot it, then I need to let it rest for two or three years, then I need to plant a baby vine, then I need to do all of that. That means that from the moment I look at land and I, th- and I want to give a direction to the moment I can use the direction, it's 10 years. And then this land will be there for 50 years. That means it will completely overgrow me. So that means that I always think that if to make a good bottle of wine, I need to wait at least 10 years change the world, guys. <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's amazing that you had those influences. Growing up on a vineyard, in, you know, in a winemaking family, like you said, that was a perfect analogy for creating change, right? The yes. fact of just planting the seeds and growing the roots and, um, and then to build something really lasting. I mean, it's, it's funny. I don't know if you intended it that way, but it's a, it really is a good analogy. No, exactly. So it just takes time to change humankind. So we are trying to change humankind. We, we just have to understand that what we are changing our behaviors and belief. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think it's so much about, like you were saying, it's changing beliefs and behaviors. And this is where I'd love to come back to your path. One of the, the things that I really appreciate about you is your systems view. You know, you started in Decathlon and working on quality to, you know, head of sustainability. But then from there, you actually went broader into more systems sort of view to Sustainable Apparel Coalition, now Global Fashion Agenda, and working with governments on yes, regulation change. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, kind of, how do you tie that back to what you were just saying in terms of changing beliefs yes, and behaviors so- of people, and that's what it's going to take to make real change here? Yes. So therefore, there is a couple of things. So before I come to the to the belief and behaviors, indeed, what the the, the system view that you were ch- that you were saying is that I used to be working for Decathlon, a brilliant company, absolutely loving it, very committed to sustainability, yeah. investing a lot, having an amazing team working on it, but intrinsically unable to work in a real collaborative mode for many reasons. But when you talk about changing an industry and changing a supply chain, this thinking is not applicable it's obsolete you mm-hmm. cannot think that you will change yourself your supply chain and resolve all other issues of the world by yourself so indeed, this is when i decided to leave decathlon thinking that change can only happen at scale and at scale meaning that not if the company is bigger but if all of the company come together mm. when i joined the coalition to start thinking that indeed change can only happen at a bigger scale but at the time what was happening also is that we saw the growing demand and at the time also the, the logic was to say that we are doing that because the customers want it mm-hmm customers to be actually the one key people that will be asking us to be more sustainable. And then we all focused on customers, customers, we need to inform customers. We just missed a key point. The key point being that by focusing on customers, we forgot that there are citizens behind customers. So at the same time that we were trying to say, no, but the customer don't want to pay more, yeah, but the citizen demands it. Therefore, what I was thinking also at the time is that I can imagine that citizens more and more will show discontent and would be expressing a willingness to have a more sustainable civilization in a certain way more and more. This is particularly valid for Europe, is in some ways also valid for Asia, particularly on the environmental side of things. Yeah. We saw in China countries how vehement the civil society can be on environmental issues. It's a bit more blurred and gray in the States for whatever reason, because I think it's maybe one of the countries that also took the world sustainability in a very political sense, which is therefore damaging every, many conversations you can have on it. Yeah. But therefore, when we see what's happening right now, and for instance, again, the result of the last European election, we saw a big cry out again of citizens saying, we want more sustainability happening and we want it happening now. And we want you guys to push even further. 
Meaning, therefore, that in terms of shaping the beliefs, actually, we were trying to change the behavior of customers, again, forgetting the citizen. And I think it's important that if we want to carry on in this sense, and if we want to be a really transformative industry, we need to be able to talk to both. Yeah, oh, that's so, that's so interesting. I think you're right in that the consumers and the citizens, they're essentially the same people. Maybe that's when we're talking about kind of belief and behavior change, that's at least one belief evolution that's happening slowly. Uh, but companies, you know, I'm thinking of like a Patagonia or something, they're really yes. clearly aware that their consumers, their customers are also very active citizens in society. Exactly. They, they definitely show the path in that. So they show the path by doing indeed all of the, the, the kind of NGO activities sometime nearly. But to, to your point, exactly. They were addressing the two issues, like our customers are also citizens. And what we deliver actually is virtually a product not for customers, but for citizens. And then also, therefore, one subsequent idea they had is that if we want to change the beliefs and the behavior, first, we need still at least to work on education. And we need to make sure that everybody has the information that they will need to be able to understand what's happening. And I think when they worked on the Chronicles and things like that, they were also there are the forefront about also to provide the proper data that is still creating the basics. So they were, they, they were a leader in transparency. They still mm -hmm. are in some ways. And that's why also I think that in order to work on this behavior and to make that happen also and to have more engagement with the citizen first, it's time for the industry to really move stronger, stronger, stronger on transparency. So we need first to provide more information to our citizens slash customers that they are know, they are more aware. And that also as an industry, we need to be much more, do much better work in providing truly true information. The yeah. time when sustainability, sometimes sustainability, I was telling you about Decathlon, where sustainability was managed by quality because it was audit, it was an audit side. Some other companies, sustainability is managed by com slash marketing. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> sustainability is not here to provide a beautiful story for your company because in 80% of the case, guy, you have a bad story. I was about to use another word. So you really have <laughs> that you really don't want to, that is not providing, if you were truly and transparently providing your story, it would actually not be something that you can be proud of. It's something that you have dedicated a team working very hard on, but you are so far to become sustainable. So how do you provide this story in a meaningful way, yet credible, still true to the actions you are doing? And that many of them, because you are working and you have so crazy, amazing people working on it, but at the same time being so far from your goal of having a real sustainable value chain. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that our industry has been coached very badly was the Rena Plaza, where... Yeah. For so many years, we have been beautiful and glossy sustainability reports saying that we are always doing better and better and better, where because of the way it was shaped, it was impossible to understand what is vaguely a philanthropy approach of empowering a couple of people in one factory in Punjab compared to having a systemic change in your value chain. So project, pilots, philanthropy was all mistaken, but then we picture the industry, we are there, and suddenly can have that happen. So how do we honestly say, actually, this is more where we, we are a bit in the middle. So we need to show where we are exactly in this case. And I think, hence, this is a work of transparency needs to happen. First, we need to regain the credibility via transparency and meaningful transparency. And then as an industry, we can start to engage in a much meaningful way with our customers slash citizens to be able to have all together the change that we need to see happening. You brought up so many <laughs> important points there that I, I want to just kind of deconstruct there is a link between transparency, providing information, 
and then where sustainability or whatever that is lives in the organization. It's not, it's not really kind of a metric, but one thing I, I often look for is if there's something off that you see, and let's say you're just kind of a line employee in a company somewhere, do you have a way to say something? Could you actually say, let's say you actually even made a mistake about something, right? Like, let's say you're like, oh, I went with this one, but it was the cheapest option. But maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have. Who should I talk to about it? Oh, maybe, you know what, I just won't say anything. And that's, I think, the shift from it's an informational and transparency issue to then it's a cultural, you know, you're really creating a culture of, of responsibility. Kind of how do you yes. hold people accountable inside the team? Exactly. I think when you, were the, when you use the word accountability, that's the main benefit of transparency, that people are accountable about what they are doing. They feel that they are really in charge of, the school, of whatever they will be promoting and being transparent with. That's a, a key benefit. Yeah. I'm curious if you've seen this, because I think, you know, what we were talking about also is moving from, let's say, information to behaviors to essentially to eventually to beliefs changing, mm -hmm. right? And it's, it's kind of, it's a path, it's a long path <laughs> to be able to do that. It's back to the winemaking, right? You've got to plant the seed and <laughs> yes. it's to grow. And I'm curious for you, especially because you, in your role with Sustainable Apparel and with the Global Fashion Agenda, you're working with a lot of these companies that are further ahead than most. Yes. Yeah. Have you seen that progression? Like, I'm partly also looking for a bit of hope, I guess. Also, yeah, but oh, there is hope. There is hope. Otherwise, that's why I still, <laughs> I still work in it. Otherwise, I would I always say that I make wines that at the end of the day, I can either drink it out of despair or open it out of celebration of the success. <laughs> in any case, a bottle will be useful. So, um, uh, but anyway, so no, there is definitely hope because for instance, even still 10, 15 years ago, you still have had to have a conversation explaining people that sustainability, the first time when I was saying to people, I want to do sustainability, the answer I would get is like, oh, that's very trendy. No, I'm doing it because it's very trendy right now. I'm doing it because it's something that will become systematic. And now I don't think that any of the organization that I'm working with needs some of those leaders even challenge that it's a key priority. If, if I think about one of those organizations, like for instance, an HM, they're very clear that there's, you don't have to convince them that their business model doesn't work for the future. They know it. They know that they want to change. That's why they are very investing a lot of effort, time in circular economy, trying to think, okay, we need to rethink our approach. We need to be circular in so many ways because it's the only way that we'll be able to thrive for the future and to become a sustainable organization. So you don't have to convince people. So that means that in terms of behavior and beliefs, it's already going to professionals. So now you have a big layer of professional, which are not only the people do, working in sustainability that were the beginning missionaries with our little walking and preach, preaching in the desert sometime and then preaching to a crowd that was growing and growing and growing. Now the preaching is done. And now what I think we start to see again by when I see at the, the scores of the Green parties in different elections and how the, the, the sustainability is becoming proeminent in all of the debates that I'm hearing on television, or that I'm seeing on the radio, uh, the other way around, that therefore that means that um, this change is already happening within the citizens. On this note. On that note, I want to thank you so much for your time because now you've got, you know, we've got a lot more thought starters, I feel like, on each of these directions we can go into. So I want to thank you. I want to wish you a really good Friday working at home. Thank you. Thank you. It will be good, I hope. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you so much. Time. A big thanks to Baptiste. You can follow him at apparelcoalition.org. This is Impact Journey. See you next time.